All right. Welcome to Imposters Anonymous. Thanks for joining. If you are new to the show, I would like to take a moment just to encourage you to jump back to the very first episode of the project. It's a brief intro. It's about six or seven minutes long, but provides some really helpful context just about the nature of this project and how it differs from most. So I think it's context worth having going into any episode. But for those of you who are return listeners, thanks for coming back. And if you'd like to just skip the housekeeping altogether, totally understandable, no hard feelings, but just jump forward and listen for the music. But for those of you who would like to stick around, I do have a few updates. So the Substack is alive and well. For those of you who have been deriving some real or meaningful value from the show and would be interested in some additional supplemental content or a space to support the show or the project in general, that's going to be your best place to do that, as well as anyone who would be interested in exploring, sharing some of their own content in an anonymous format or contributing to the show. In time, I am trying to build more of a sense of community around the concept of just creating a space for individuals to more genuinely share themselves with the world without fear of judgment or insecurity or limitations around identity. So if that resonates with you at all, there's definitely a space for that. That's impostersanonymous.substack.com. Any work submissions would go to impostersanonymous at gmail.com. Ultimately, I'd, I'd love for this project to be able to grow into something that's truly collaborative and even where submissions could be rewarded for their merit or for their response from the community but that and other broad or ambitious aims i have for this project are truly dependent on listener support so of course it goes without saying but any of it is truly appreciated no matter what support looks like for you as an individual i guess i'll leave it at that and if you're still here thanks for hanging in and I hope you enjoy the show. You don't know how lucky you are being a monkey. The past is just a story we tell ourselves. Welcome to Imposters Anonymous. Janine, thanks for coming on. Of course. I'm excited. Yeah. How are you feeling today? I'm doing pretty well. Uh, excited that it is finally getting nice out, uh, which is great here in Rhode Island. So that makes me happy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's uh, daylight savings, I guess, just happened. So we just... Well, that wasn't good, but but it's getting <laughs> warmer and more light out is. <laughs> right. Yeah. I guess there's there's two sides to the coin there. It's nice. From a light perspective, but the the loss of an hour is is a little bit devastating. Terrible. I was so confused <laughs> this morning. I was like, "What?" <laughs> yeah. No, it can be a lot. I I don't know if you've ever heard that. There's, it's pretty jarring the data on like what happens on this day every year, mm-hmm. where it's like heart attacks, 
car crashes, like all cause mortality go up significantly just from like this one hour. Because people are a little bit more fatigued. Is that the idea? Yeah. They just, just the loss of one, like collective thrown off generally (laughs) hour of sleep just like really fucks people up. That's real. That's real though. (laughs) Uh, But yeah, I mean, on the other, on the flip side of it, there's also research that when they essentially just move school back, like a single hour that students Mm test scores go up i mean that makes sense to me too i'm like just why why do we have to start so early <laughs> right it, it seems unnecessary and i get with like busing it's a little complicated i guess true true and that, also you know you want it to be aligned with families work schedules generally so that people can you know get kids to school so that makes sense because some mm-hmm. people have to take care of their kids really early you know their, their kids have to be in school by like seven o'clock so they can get to work you know so right yeah yeah, well, I guess that gives us a way to to jump right into it since we're <laughs> since we're on education, um, and uh, I think we can just we can get in some deep water pretty pretty quickly here. So, <laughs> uh, yeah, in in the past, and I don't know if you've even heard this on on other recordings, but I've generally argued that to start, we can't address racial inequality. Racial inequality being probably one of the biggest issues of our time, at least from a lot of people's perspective, or Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. at least that's taken the forefront in the past year or so, um, that we can't really address that without addressing wealth inequality. But then we can't really address wealth inequality without addressing equality of opportunity, which to me starts by democratizing the quality of of early education. Of course, Um, of course, yeah. So I'm first just curious if that tracks for you, which it seems like it does, mm-hmm. but if so, uh, what complications you see from your kind of a unique experience that that prevent it from being something that, at least from my perspective, isn't really at the forefront of political discourse? Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I think, <laughs> I mean, that's a huge question, just because I think people will tell you um, so many different things about why we can't focus on education. We can't maybe put money towards it. We can't, you know, maybe for some reason it doesn't hold weight as valuable as any of these other things that people are willing to put money into, whether it be Mm -hmm. defense or healthcare or whatever it is. Um, But part of it, I think, is truly just um, a lack of desire in some situations, Mm. which isn't very like solutions oriented. (laughs) Yeah, <laughs> but um, but you know, it, it's you pay attention to what you choose to pay attention to, and and what you know you think has value to you personally, and um, a lot of people that make decisions about education and and the money that goes into it don't really are not really involved. Do you know what I'm saying? You mm. know, they they don't necessarily have to see how it plays out when it doesn't go well in their lives on a regular basis. Right. Um, and so I mean that's part of it. Again, not solutions oriented, so not quite sure. so helpful. But uh, part of it, I also think, is that people are not so well aware of the different mm-hmm. things that actually take place, like in a school setting, right. that you know hold kids back or reinforce you know certain failures in the system. Like you know, people just are not informed generally about it. Mm-hmm. You know, they they understand their experience. They're like, okay. I went to a school that was like this, or I went to a school that was like this, and that's all you really know. Mm-hmm. Um, so part of it, I think, is a, is an education piece too, um, mm. when it prevents people from just making it part of our like regular 
maybe national discussion on what's important and where we should focus. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, part of the reason I bring it up so aggressively, I guess, up front is that I do feel like it is something that has become a bit of a recurring theme, but on a very surface level in previous episodes where mm-hmm. I feel like a lot of people talk around it or, and even I tend to in a lot of ways because I only know so much about it. And it seems relatively intuitive that this would be where we would mm-hmm. really need to start if we wanted to address any sort of inequality in a real way. If at a young age, at a developmental, very important stage of life, people are just being met with such different levels of resource and investment. Yeah, like, yeah. I mean, it, it, no, go ahead. <laughs> no, no, it's fine. I, I was just going to finish the thought that. Of course, inequality would arise if that was the only factor. Of course, it's not. But even if it was, if our schools were just that unequal and it's just a matter of where you grow up or what school district you're in or whether or not Mm -hmm. your parents Mm -hmm. can afford to send you someplace better, um, of course, we would we would face a lot of the problems that we do. But Mm -hmm. it doesn't always seem clear to me why it is so equal, unequal in that sense. Like why mm-hmm. we mm-hmm. haven't put more effort towards leveling the playing field, at least as far as public education. Right, right. I mean, I think part of it is also people believe we have tried that, you know, but then some of the current mm-hmm. issues that we face are almost like a function of trying to even the playing field, but just like ineffectively, if that makes sense, right. <laughs> you know? So, um, yeah, no, I agree though. Really, it's just what I was trying to say. But yeah, that sometimes people feel like, oh, yeah, we've, we've reformed or we've tried to increase um, equality of opportunity to a certain degree. And now everybody has an opportunity, right? Or something like that. And so right. now it should just improve naturally, maybe mm-hmm. from that state. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's it's definitely interesting. A friend of mine went to public school in, in Greenwich, Connecticut. Mm, and yeah. hearing and there's a whole story to that but hearing just the the quality and the investment and just the level of aptitude that was even just expected of them or mm-hmm. it, i mean it it reads like a a high level a higher education institution or even at, at worst a, a private institution but this was just the public school that was close to his house kind of situation mm-hmm, mm-hmm. versus what I've heard from other friends who just happen to be in not the best districts. And it just seems like, like, is there anything that you could speak to on that front as far as differences in just actual funding that the, that these schools are receiving? Um, yeah, well, of course, um, you know, to a degree in public education, at least obviously funding is coming from the state and then coming from the federal government uh, in a variety of ways. And, schools benefit to a degree from having a certain amount of inequality or at least need, right? You know, you Mm. get money for students that, um, you know, free and reduced price lunch, for example, you're getting money for students who are economically disadvantaged. You're Mm. getting funding for um, almost how hard it is, quote unquote, how hard it is to teach the learner, right? When you get funding Mm. for L students or SPED students. and that, to a degree, that system, that's an example of what I was talking about, right? It's something mm-hmm. that is meant to promote equality, and it is a good thing. But then when not really, like, 
used with the right almost mindset mm-hmm. um, and understanding of what it should be doing, then now it's a it's a source that some schools use to hoard, for example, like they're hoarding that type of funding, you know, like right. it benefits them to generally support their students that have a variety of needs. But then the funding is really what becomes um, of interest, you know? Oh, gotcha. Okay. Yeah. I mean, that, and, and that's not, um, you know, that's not what happens. I say like across the board, I'm giving you an example of sort of like misuse, I guess. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think it, it, it illustrates the point well though. And then something that I hadn't spent much time thinking about. Um, but one particular aspect of it that I, I think you personally would have a, a good perspective on is just the difficulty of retaining talent and, Mm-hmm. in these schools in regards to mm-hmm. the the staff especially yeah. ones that are in let's just say the n- not the best districts or that have limited resources and of course they're just not being paid <laughs> mm-hmm. enough to to keep top talent for whatever that means in schools and i think in a lot of ways the the most obvious way to address it would be to pay early education providers more, right? Right, right. That's certainly, certainly part of it, right? There's, you know, this question of fair wage for for teachers in a way that it actually incentivizes people to participate, Hmm. right? But then I think, you know, there's also development, right? To what degree Hmm. are you ensuring that instruction is high quality? Because I think all the data shows that the most important thing related to a student's academic achievement is literally the teacher who's in front of them, right? Like mm-hmm. that's actually what the data shows, which makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> they're, they're, that's who's doing the instruction. Um, so obviously a ton of other factors are involved, but um, it makes sense to spend time on and to invest in the teacher. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it, that does seem like a pretty obvious thing, but you see obviously that um, it's not quite so apparent because uh, even discussion around just paying teachers like other professions, maybe mm. like doctors or lawyers, you hear that discussion sounds preposterous. Right. <laughs> and I'm like, I mean, well, not to if, me, you, but... if you want people, right, if you want people to do a good job <laughs> and get right. like the development that they need to do so, you, you've got to incentivize it. Now, is that the solution? Like, by all means, No. But mm. certainly that would help. You can't say that wouldn't help. <laughs> right. You know, it almost doesn't make sense. You're like, okay, well, <laughs> yeah. like for some people it's prohibitive to teach. You can't even really make that much of a living depending on where you live, you know? Right. Um, so. Sure. Especially if you're, a, I think generally someone who has the capacity to be a great teacher has the capacity to do. Right. Uh, various other things it's it's not like that skill set only maps on to teaching so right it's and and sometimes you have people that are would be excellent teachers and they Mm. have to you know you have to be smart in order to be a good teacher like you have to you know appreciate the um academic aspect of teaching right Mm. you know in order to do that well because that's what you're trying to convey and pass on to your students um so in order to convince that type of person to choose that over, you know, whatever else Mm. they were going to do, whether it was, you know, designing planes or building buildings or, you know, being a lawyer or whatever else. It's like, how do you, you've got to 
convince them that this mm-hmm. would also be great, you know, and, right. and, and reasonable mm-hmm. from a financial perspective. Yeah. I mean, I think it's a, another example of that would be kind of how people tend to think about the nonprofit sector and that there's this idea that people in who work for nonprofits, people in public education essentially have to be saints, right? That they have to mm-hmm. be willing right. to do this thankless work uh, that is incredibly demanding and, and difficult mm-hmm. and important, but also we can't expect them to have ambitions in that or to right, right. to make uh, what we would consider a, a good amount of money in this country, where a lot of times people look at nonprofits who spend a lot on overhead or on mm-hmm. in payroll and we're like, we frown upon that, even if that means that they're attracting the most kind of capable and talented right, people right, to actually solve the problems. Exactly. It's like the quality of people matter, obviously, you know, so you have to be able to um, get that, get what you need in that regard. Mm-hmm. Mm, that makes it, sense. Yeah, I mean it's it's definitely frustrating and like I said off intuitively it seems like if we just made sure that every elementary school teacher was making six figures <laughs> we would solve most of the problems in education and maybe that's kind of a myopic way of looking at it but mm-hmm. if if we made it an attractive space for you know, people coming out of elite universities and such. Right. Young professionals, you know, of any kind. Yeah. It would, it seems like in a generation that that would totally change the the demographic of teachers, but also just the, the quality of education that was being received on average. Obviously there's barriers to that. Like I get that the funding's not just going to come out of nowhere, but uh, it seems like some sort of reallocation on that front has mm-hmm, to happen mm-hmm. before anything else truly meaningful would because if it's if that seems like some sort of last resort profession to like half of teachers that they're just like well I'm just going to do this because I don't really feel like anything else is a good prospect for me like if if most teachers are feeling very unmotivated in that sense it's mm-hmm. it seems impossible to imagine that we'd be able to to make a ton of change in that space but Right, right. Yeah, no. And it also would require that, you know, you're now doing things to just to go back to your point about retention, but like that you're paying teachers and then also doing things to continue to make them want to remain in that field, Mm -hmm. right? Like there has to be clear pathways to growth. There has to be um, opportunities for constant development, you know, uh, right. at least for someone who's coming into it with passion and a desire to learn and desire to improve, which we'll say most people are right. Mm-hmm. Um, but all of those things, you know, matter, I think quite a bit too, especially when you think of sustaining a, a workforce that is diverse and that mm-hmm. is, um, you know, made up of the best capable people for this, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I mean that's that's definitely an important point and I think something that that often becomes a part of this conversation at least in a political sense is is charter schools and that being some sort of a potential alternative for families or parents, I guess students as well in in situations mm-hmm. where the the district that they're in, the public school that they would be uh bused to generally isn't the best option and that it gives 
parent some sort of uh, agency to be able to, if my understanding is correct, get into a lottery to to go to a a better institution for whatever that's worth. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I mean that's that's just a type, right? There's several different kinds of charter schools, and so mm-hmm. some operate under that where there's a lottery, this lottery function that is. Um, an attempt to equitably involve, you know, any interested people and in, in students. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there's, there's also lots of different types. And that's part of, you know, what you say is good and bad about charter schools is the absolute variety, I think. Um, and that means differences in quality uh, and opportunity and all of that, you know, but mm-hmm. to your, it is just increasing choice, right? It, increasing options for people, which is ultimately um, the argument. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, and I mean, I think to to what you just said, it's t- it's typically framed in that sense uh, as a political issue, mm-hmm, as mm-hmm. S- school choice, uh, yeah, right. and that that's something that historically conservatives have more so been in support of, as opposed to liberals, which to me, especially considering where I generally stand politically, is kind of surprising on its face, <laughs> um, and. I I've been exposed to a decent amount of rhetoric on that front, but not enough for me to feel like I fully understand why there's so much opposition uh, or a general opposition to it mm-hmm. on the left beyond there being some sort of push and pull related to teachers unions and how the party is funded. But um, right. I'm just curious if it's something that, that you had any, thoughts on or or insight in regards to, or even just opinions on Mm -hmm. school choice as a, as an issue and, and and whether or not you feel like it's generally positive. Yeah. So I think school choice, a lot of people misunderstand school choice to be like, anybody can choose from all of the options all the time. Mm Mm-hmm. Right. Which we just know isn't true. No matter how much variety there is, there's going to be some um, spaces that people don't have access to uh, Mm -hmm. in either direction, whether it's because they are so wealthy, they wouldn't even think about being in certain spaces or Mm -hmm. um, the other end of that where you just don't even see you can't go to boarding Mm -hmm. school that costs ten thousand dollars a year or something like that. Right. Right. Um, And but the problem with school choice is school choice without a baseline, I think, of standards, right? Mm. Because then it just means, okay, anybody can choose from anything. But to my point, not everybody chooses from all the options, you right. know, so that and some options are far can be far worse than others. Mm-hmm. And I think that's why you're, you know, people might take issue with charter schools sometimes as a broad subject, because they're like, well, some charter schools are so bad. Right. And they don't mm-hmm. even raise the achievement of kids. And, you know, they, they don't have provide additional resources or whatever it is. And it's like, yeah, I mean, that <laughs> makes sense. That's true. Like in the rest of the schools, mm-hmm. you know, like because that's how our system is set up. Right. There's right. no like baseline for, OK, everybody at minimum gets X. And then here are spaces for innovation. Right. You have mm-hmm. to have space for innovation. So I'm, I'm totally for the um, idea that people should be allowed to opt into um, alternative spaces for education. Like people Mm -hmm. should keep trying new things and keep, you know, um, expanding our idea of what education can be and should be. Right. Mm -hmm. And if you want to try that in your specialized school and families want to participate in that, like everybody opts in, you know, it's Mm -hmm. no, nobody's forced into that. And that's the choice you make. 
And within that, you've got to prove yourself, right? Because, mm-hmm. you know, if we agree that education at, at minimum should be educating students in mm-hmm. the term of preparing them for the workforce, college and beyond, whatever mm-hmm. we want to generally think of that as, um, then achievement, you've got to have some achievement there. We can't just be, you know, right. <laughs> doing all kinds of other things and not making sure kids actually learn, you know? Mm-hmm. Um but I think as long as that's in place, then by all means, you know, take it and run with it, like do something creative that is going to be really, really helpful and productive mm-hmm. for some kids. Right. right. You know, I, I don't think it's a one size fits all approach at all. Mm-hmm. But uh, I do think that there needs to be a baseline of of, well, we can't have like some kids getting nothing and others getting everything like that obviously doesn't right. make sense, you know? Yeah. Yeah, I mean that that makes sense that in general, and I guess maybe the, like the steel man argument of of what I've heard on the opposition is generally that to your point about the baseline that if you're sure of course if you're if you happen to be in a, a really poor school district generally speaking most parents would want the opportunity to maybe get their child out of it and mm-hmm. generally those would be the the students there's probably going to be a correlation there in regards to their general aptitude so if these public schools that already are struggling are losing some of their best students are losing students in general mm-hmm. um some students are obviously still having to go to these schools right, right and right. so it's in a way kind of widening the gap where you would in theory you would need to kind of raise the floor for everyone to make sure there's a baseline so that right, it's not right. like, and it's, and it's not widening. I want to say widening. I would say it's spreading out, right? right. Like it's okay. more like disseminating it into not just like a two levels, right. A, like a nothing in a something mm-hmm. level, if that makes sense. But it's like, but yeah, it, it's spreading it out. So now we're saying, well, there's multiple levels potentially. Mm-hmm. Um, but true, we're not raising the floor. So mm-hmm. then, we're just spreading people out, you know? Um, So, so I think both of those things have to happen together. And that's how also it works when you teach kids too. Like when you're trying to get a group of students to understand something, you're constantly Mm. thinking about how do I move the middle of the group in a way, because that allows everybody to sort of learn more and, and move further along by, you know, moving kids out of the middle into the, I understand the mastery Mm. sort of group. Um, but yeah, for some reason that's, people don't really see it as that. And it's also because it's not set up to be quite here yet. You know, Mm -hmm. like there are charter schools that are completely privately funded, right? They have an array of resources and they're almost like a private school in some ways in the sense of not completely privately funded, but, you know, they're getting private donations and contributions, you know, from the outside. And then they're also getting federal funding. Right. Right. Um, And then there's some that really just, you know, don't get any of that. And so then there's Mm. disparity right there. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, I think you're definitely painting a little bit of a more thorough picture for me, now that you bring up some of these these other points, uh, which I, I definitely think is helpful, I think generally it's another part of the reason I bring it up is because I feel like it's one of those classic issues where there's just like a huge disconnect politically in regards to mm-hmm. how politicians or people in that space tend to think about an issue. 
and then how the people that actually impacts think about it where generally speaking of course these a lot of these minority underprivileged groups who it affects the most are are going to generally want choice right They're it's, like, of it, course. it seems yeah, you obvious want options. and and you don't even you don't even say that because that's just like what we would say quote unquote is american right it's choice mm. it's individualism to almost a fault is i should be able to choose at any given time what i want for myself and then go go get that thing mm-hmm. right and then we just not that that's like a universal thing we should all just you know believe in and live by but if you want that to play out here you just actually have taken it away in mm. education you know because we're now saying nope you have to go somewhere because of where you live and that's right. it you know mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like well, where did that come from you know that's a whole other question it's like okay well why, why who who thought that that was a good idea you know right. yeah i mean it's certainly one that i feel like just it doesn't go talked about enough and, and sure it, it does in certain circles but that it's something that at the very least i think the the democratic party on hold just has to in the future take a closer look at because even in this last election cycle it was i don't mean to be reductive about it but there certainly were a good number of kind of single issue voters uh, especially mm-hmm. in in the black community who that was kind of the main pitch that that trump had to black voters was i'm for school choice and generally there's support in this community for school choice and for mm-hmm. some people, it's a big enough of an issue that it was something that that garnered support. And regardless of all the other problems at play there and all the other complexities of it, it's there still was some support on that front. And at least to me, that means clearly it's not going away. And if someone more compelling, well, of course not, who, right? But also <laughs> because it's, I mean, like unless people want to change. Um, the entire fabric of our society as it's run thus far, which says that in order to make money, which is required, you have to get a degree of education and skills, mm-hmm. right? Like, unless we want to flip that on its head, <laughs> right. then people are always going to strive for education and, you know, better quality of it. Unless of course it's just quality across the board and then you don't strive for it because everybody has it. Right. right. Um, but but if that's going to be how this works, you know, people are going to need and want and desire education for themselves, for their families. And within that is going to have is always choice. Right. Mm-hmm. You don't want to be forced to have what you know to be so quality just because of something you have no control over. Right. Um, nobody wants to be in that situation and doesn't want their families to be either. So it's always going to be um, you're right. I think an issue unless some other broader action is is taken that, like I said, raises the quality of things generally in a way. Right. Yeah. And I mean, I think it definitely, it definitely illustrates the part of one of our main problems, I, I feel like personally, politically, and even just culturally and, and socially, that it is, there is a general expectation for individuals to kind of just be straight ticket party voters in every regard. And so I think a lot of times people see an issue like this and tend to brush it off a little bit because it's like, okay, my party generally feels this way on it. So that must be probably right. And Mm. there's no need to really pressure that any further. Uh, And I think that limits 
this issue becoming one that's more so at the forefront, I guess, to my original question about mm. the political discourse and it not being something that I feel like is talked about enough, despite the fact that it seems like it could be a very meaningful change that is tangible and feasible that could maybe have bipartisan support. But Right, right. You would think so, right? You'd be mm. like, wait, everybody wants... Um, cares about kids generally, right? (laughs) You know, um, if you want to start there, right? Like everyone generally cares about kids. Everybody sees value in putting um, investment into, you know, our our youth and what we say is the future of this country because it is, right? Mm -hmm. Um, But then, yeah, for some reason that doesn't extend to, you know, overhauling education broadly. Like I think, I would think if a president or a politician were to run on that, in a very serious way, right? Where Mm -hmm. you've done your research, you, you have ideas, you have plans and things that you want to try and stick to. Um, Mm -hmm. that would be universally positive, you know, if it meant better for kids in your area or your district or your state or whatever it is, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, but yeah, there, there's so many other things that are involved. And I think reasons why people take an opinion on education that now it's become something that, People will now argue, well, you have to leave it up to the state to like everything to the state, mm. right? Um, no. Which, you know, doesn't work all the way. <laughs> yeah. um, but, it, you know, there's it's, it's always there's arguments for both sides. And that's in part why people kind of remain stuck not doing anything at all is because, well, you see in certain circumstances, you're like, oh, this makes sense. This line of logic makes sense. And then, you know, people don't make any decisions. They're not willing to try anything, you know? Mm. Right. Yeah. I mean, I, I definitely agree to that. And I guess to push back on that a little bit, not that I I feel like necessarily the right changes are happening, but I do feel like right now is a time in which we're seeing some degree of an overhaul in education, or at least we're seeing a sense of urgency in regards to, to changes on a, on a particular front. I guess one example, even just being more related to what we've been talking about, and I'll admit, I'm mostly just like quoting a headline here <laughs> in my understanding of it. Uh, I don't know if you've heard, but in, I believe in the Boston area, they are essentially looking to remove these like schools for the gifted. So mm. these kind of uh, higher achievement schools of sorts or, or schools for, for quote unquote gifted children, mm-hmm. uh, higher aptitude kids getting rid of them in the name of it being a a sort of force for inequality or, or racism Mm -hmm, of a sort, mm -hmm. um, Mm -hmm. which I I think is, is probably well-intended, but to me kind of feels like maybe missing the mark a little bit. Um, I mean, for sure. It's like whenever you, uh, no one should be arguing to remove anything good, you know, right? Like if this school is doing right by kids, you know, and and like in that regard, then why remove it? Mm -hmm. That's not really the answer is take it out. Now, no kids can go to this school. You know, why is that? It's more about ensuring that everyone who might potentially thrive there has an opportunity to go, you know, Mm -hmm. like that's sort of the, the argument is, you know, we don't need to reduce the number of good things happening, but we do need to make sure that people have access to them and that that's fair. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, I think you'll probably find there's some schools that it makes sense to, you know, remove in a way, not, not close per se, but 
because maybe it is purely based on um, some sort of system or wealth, you know, maybe they cost a lot of money to get into. Like if it's, if it's set up that way, then you see how easily how it excludes people. But Mm -hmm. if it's not, then it's like, well, don't just remove it because it's for gifted, like and gifted in and Mm -hmm. of itself. We could take issue with that term, but like, it's like, why remove it just because of it's maybe philosophy, you know, Mm -hmm. I don't know what you would, I don't know what you would say. The reason is to close it. Right. Yeah. And I mean, I guess to kind of, flesh that out a little bit more, um, it seems as though this sort of action and and lots of other action, maybe we can get into some of it later, but a lot of it comes it comes in the package of trying to to prevent racial inequality uh, right. in one one regard or another, and that there is a certain ideology that and and maybe you can speak to it in a in a higher fidelity way, because I'm speaking to it mostly from an outsider's perspective mm-hmm. and what I've generally been exposed to, but that the idea that is being pushed in a lot of spaces is that all inequality has to be uh, essentially attributed to racism, that any inequality that exists across racial demographics. So let's just say it doesn't exactly reflect reflect the population uh, mm-hmm. from a demographic perspective. If we're, let's just talk in black and white terms, mm-hmm. we're saying it's, I don't know, 13, 14% of the population. If that isn't reflected in any space, the explanation is, is racism. Um, and that being mm-hmm. kind of the, the thesis at the heart of Kendi's How to Be an Anti-Racist, which is you know the number one selling book in in, in America? I, maybe it's not anymore, but it certainly yeah, was. Yeah, it was at time. one point, right? Yeah. And I I knew many people who were sent home with it with their jobs. Um, oh wow! It's, it's certainly being okay. I didn't even know some, people were <laughs> sending it home with people at their jobs. Hey, that's great. Do some more reading. I'm all for that. <laughs> um, Sure. I mean, I, I certainly can support doing more reading in principle, but exactly. That's um, really the joke. You know, like, <laughs> hey, if if people are learning a bit more that they didn't know, then hey, that's great. <laughs> right. Um, but yeah, that being kind of a, a pillar of of the general critical race theory that I that is generally being framed as diversity training of sorts, and in a lot of different spaces, trying to get people to mm-hmm. to do some things that I can agree are important, like recognizing privilege and mm-hmm. being mm-hmm. exposed to new perspectives and uh, just being more open-minded in general. But if that is the thesis, which it explicitly is in that book, that presents so many problems, right? That if, if any situation in which we see inequality, which you could certainly argue is is natural in regards to just how the world works that in, in any mm-hmm, space mm-hmm. there's going to be inequality even just from Absolutely, an evolutionary right. perspective mm-hmm. that if any time we see that and we we have to assume that it is because of racism of course it is in some circumstances but right. if every place that we look and we find it we our impulse is to say the problem is racism and we need to cleanse this um, I think that's part of where some of this action, the the removal of these high achieving schools, because 
if we look at the demographics and we say, well, only 2% of the kids here are black, mm-hmm. it must be because this is a racist institution and there's there's no other degree of nuance that we're willing to look at this from and say, right. maybe there's other, you know, maybe if we're, we're just totally ignoring even just the socioeconomics of it. Um, right, right. Well, yeah, it's and that's what you, you said it when you said lack of nuance, right? It's like when people are... Um, not asking other questions about how something comes to be this way. You mm-hmm. know, like there, whenever it comes to inequality or, uh, across lines of race, right, mm-hmm. that means something. And so right. you should ask the question, how did this inequality come to be? And in actually many cases, racism is involved in some way, right? right. But it doesn't mean that that was uh, maybe the primary or driving factor. It also doesn't take into consideration the way things uh, develop over time and change mm-hmm. over time. You know, when you think about how racism plays out and, um, you know, just over time. Um, so I think to one, on one hand, I do agree with him, right? Like, like when we, whenever we see racial difference, inequality, then we need to figure out, okay, does this have to, what, to what degree is there intentionality behind this? And in many situations, the answer is yes, there is, mm-hmm. there is intentionality behind right. it, but you can't just um, stamp it universally as that, right? You have to ask other questions uh, and, and consider context. Mm-hmm. And I think kind of to go towards what you were saying at the beginning, like, I think the problem sometimes is, or the problem right now is that people are looking for, um, answers you know people are looking for like a a truth like a book of truths that they can Mm -hmm. all learn from right about anti-racism they're like oh shit we've been doing this wrong (laughs) but i let me go find the book that's going to tell me you know let me go find the thing that's going to give me the 10 commandments of how to do this right make it it's like right and it's like well like Kendi's work certainly is important and I'm excited like I said before you know that's Mm -hmm. the joke I'm excited that more people are even know what that is Mm-hmm. Right. That are reading this and thinking about it. But you can't just take it and then now apply it universally and just say, oh, right. this is the Bible. And so if it's not fitting into this ideology, mm-hmm. then, oh, sorry, racist, you know, mm-hmm. um, that doesn't work either. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's that's a very important point, I think. And it's it is we do have that natural impulse. Right. I mean, I think it's maybe even a I've heard some people, some black intellectuals speak to it in a, an interesting way like from a religious perspective that we have mm. this kind of natural religious impulse and that in, in these modern times that tends to more so take, uh, take on a form of, of ideology that isn't explicitly mm. religious, but we have this desire and capacity to, to want a belief system, to want a, a Bible of sorts, to want these Ten Commandments that we can turn to and mm-hmm. to have an ideology that simplifies all other things that we can say, right, right, no, right, I right. have these principles that I believe to be true and that are compelling to me and that make me feel like I'm doing the right things. And so- Of course. And, and that's what it, that's what it comes down to, right? Is <laughs> like the fear in many cases of people- you know, maybe learning something about themselves that they weren't aware of. Mm-hmm. And they're like, oh my gosh, how do I quickly get myself up to speed? You know, <laughs> like how, right. how do I fix this? But then also it's just um, truly laziness to a degree, mm-hmm. you know, when it's like you aren't, you don't want to spend any more time 
thinking about this and unpacking it and sort of unraveling what this means in your life, you know, you just want to get the answers, you know? Mm -hmm. And and so that I think is part of it too, when people are just so quick to latch onto something and then not consider, you know, diversity even within that. Mm -hmm. Um, But I do think it is important that people, you know, start to understand you know, to expand their awareness and perspective. And part of it is reading things like that and being like, whoa, huh, you know, (laughs) and thinking about like how that is true in many Mm. situations, you know, because for some people that's, they haven't thought about that. They haven't even thought like, oh, is inequality rooted in racism at all? Right. Yeah. I'm glad you said that because it's something I kind of go back and forth on sometimes. And at least as far as just my overall view on it. And I think mm-hmm. ultimately it probably is doing more, more positive than negative right now for the point that you just made that I think there's enough people that are blind and ignorant enough that even a, not to be rude, but a, a little bit of a clumsy a- application of the right ideas is better than nothing in that mm-hmm. they're being exposed to, to something that is is allowing them to step outside of their own perspective and right, say, and just have oh, some shit, other thoughts. I just, yeah. I just never considered this point of view at all. I never even mm-hmm. considered what it would be like to be a person of color in this country and the right. difficulties of it. And I, of course, feel like that's overwhelmingly positive. But at the same time, there is that other side of it where it's like, if people are getting the fundamental wrong idea about it, as it comes down to some sense of of racial essentialism essentialism that that tends to be kind of a natural derivative of a certain way of thinking where of course in its original sense it was clearly a bad thing right where mm-hmm. if we look at the civil rights movement and, and we look at MLK or are you and, talking about essentialism when you when you yeah, say that like yeah. you, right right where it's that you could look at someone purely based on their race and you could decide a variety of things about them, that that could be the most important thing that you would consider about any individual. That mm-hmm. that was a fundamentally racist idea in throughout the civil rights movement is that there was there was people like like MLK and, and Ellison just saying like, just just treat me as a human being, just look at me right. beyond my race, just look at the quality of my character and of course we have not gotten there but at the same time if you if you look at some of the things that are being pushed under the the framing of anti-racism are suggesting that that race is the lens through which we should look at everything which starts to right. get back to a a similarly racial racially essentialist viewpoint which sure it it manifests itself differently but it is right. in a way encouraging people to say you know, okay, I see a white person. I I know some fundamental things about them in their experience because of their whiteness. We're describing right, right, blackness, of course. And, um, blackness and whiteness in in more rigid terms, mm-hmm. which seems like if it continues, is going to get to a a more negative point relatively soon. And, and maybe that's just me being a little bit of a skeptic in general, but. Um, it seems as though, at least in my opinion, I'm, I'm hoping it's not too much of an overcorrection that people start to like 
Okay, here's an example that you might be able to, I don't know if you've experienced mm-hmm. this at all, but things like like black only spaces uh, and university campuses where they've started to create- Oh, you kind mean of, like physical spaces? Like, you know, right, like- Right, where it's like, like okay. the idea- I think is well intended, right? It's a safe space. It's a, it's a place where mm-hmm. black people can come together and share and and feel vulnerable without being worried about any sort of mm-hmm. outside judgment or or racial bias or whatever and that in principle like it it almost seems like a good idea, right? But mm-hmm. at the same time if you if you pull back just a little bit you're like okay, what we came from whites only spaces uh, right. not it long ago similar. that. Well, I think it, it it's because like what you were talking about before, like critical race theory or even this idea of um, anti-racism and, you know, all inequality is stem stems from racial inequality or prejudice like that taken to the extreme is, is racial essentialism, right? Like it's like, I think what people sometimes forgetting are like these are like ideas along a spectrum of ideas or Mm -hmm. almost like our um, developing understanding of racism in our country. And part of it is people forget is due to our personal history, like Mm -hmm. our personal American history, like, Mm -hmm. you know, part of that history actually means that it's hard to remove race from many things, from many issues that we see today. Mm -hmm. But that's like you know, our faults, right? It's a, it's a fault of this country that is unique sure. um, and doesn't necessarily look the same in other countries, although sometimes it does. Mm-hmm. But I think people also forget that, like, they, you know, forget that part of it, that, like, we actually can't unwrap, untangle some of these issues from, you know, the history of racism in our country. And so that would make one feel, like, mm-hmm. you know, prone to then be like, oh, let's overcorrect that. Right. Then the answer is always overcorrection in the opposite direction. Mm -hmm. But, um, you know, to your point that that doesn't that doesn't always that doesn't make sense. (laughs) Um, And then when we take it to these this idea of, okay, having black only spaces or almost, you know, affinity spaces, I think I've seen them function well Mm -hmm. in my experience. But it does have to be um, a space where it actually isn't preventing anyone from coming in. Mm -hmm. It's more of a space that like, depending on who you are is going to dictate what you come there for in the sense of like, you know, I used to work at one of those places. It was called the TWC at Brown um, at the time. And um, it was a space for, you know, all people of color to come and like you said, feel safe, have a place to talk or meet people, um, mm-hmm. do your work. You, you know, there was lots of workshops that were run through there where you had learning opportunities or development opportunities or just chances to have certain conversations with people that looked like you or had similar experiences. Mm-hmm. Um, but it wasn't a space that, you know, it wasn't banned white people, right? It right. wasn't like no white people could step in the door. However, to my point, if you saw a white person coming in there, you're expecting it to come from more of a learning stance, you know, in the mm-hmm. sense of like, it is a space run by people of color for people of color. And that's okay. Mm-hmm. You know, so if you're going to come in here, don't just come in here to take up space in a way that makes it about you, you know, because in a way it's not. Mm-hmm. And that's okay. You right. know, but it, it doesn't mean that you're prevented from it. But just, and, and again, that goes back to our history, right? Like it has mm-hmm. to be that way almost because of our history, because there's been 
so much lack of learning or understanding or um, just experiencing what it's like to be a person of color in this country. Obviously, mm. there's a lack of that on the other side if you are a white person historically. Right. You know, and so that's why it has to kind of function in that way. You know, will it function in that way forever? Probably not. Hopefully mm. not. Right. Because then we all sort of come to a degree of shared understanding and institutional knowledge. And you know what I'm saying? Mm. Um, but it does make sense for it to be set up that way. Right. You know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's that's definitely an interesting point. And I think it it, it does illuminate kind of my two impulses there. Right. In principle, it does seem like a a positive mm-hmm. space. It does seem like something that would would certainly there would be a lot of benefit derived from it. Um, mm-hmm. And I think as long as you said it's not like we're explicitly excluding anyone, that that is the that's the necessary, uh, I guess, modifier there to make sure that it mm-hmm. doesn't it doesn't bleed into something that causes downstream effects or more of an us versus them mentality mm-hmm. than is necessary um which is totally understandable to feel as well like i empathize i empathize with that a lot and i guess my right, right. my uh my racial background maybe prevents some of it but i i totally get this the the impulse of like that often people who don't look like you can can feel like or people who you feel like judge you or have a certain perspective on life or a desire to oppress you that like it's it's not totally reasonable to expect individuals to just be like no i would like to welcome these people into my space of course of you course. know like that, right, right. <laughs> that you see it from the through the lens of like protection right like mm-hmm. people that people want to seek protection and safety from oppression if especially if you've experienced it right, right. like then you have a real experience to sort of go from that now is making you feel like, okay, I'd rather, I'd rather not like, Mm -hmm. can I seek some, you know, reprieve here? Um, but yeah, it just doesn't always make sense. Um, in certain spaces now, you know, also because like I said, things have changed. Like Mm -hmm. our, our society has shifted our experiences. People of color growing up right now are having a different experience than people were in the sixties and before that, you know? Mm -hmm. So, um, you just have to consider that too, you know? Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's certainly important. And I think it, I guess just to bring it back full circle, it's one of those things that maybe some of my, my hesitation comes from a place of where does it go? And I think, I think the argument I often hear that to some degree is compelling is that some degree of overcorrection is necessary because in time it will equalize itself and will Mm. come back to to a a bit of a more moderate state that will be more stable. Um, But I do sometimes wonder or maybe worry at least in regards to early education and and elementary education where there's not, it's impossible to expect young students to be able to, to really, really pressure these issues and really push them to where they need to go to have like a (laughs) thorough understanding. Like they're largely just going to absorb what they're being taught. And sure, kids are curious, but if, if someone does pressure these ideas, you, it's not hard to get to a point where at its base, you see there is a, I guess, how do I say this? There's a, there's an argument that 
essentially people are fundamentally different based on their race and that they mm-hmm. ought to be treated differently based on their race. And then it depends. It just matters how you frame that sentence, whether or not that mm-hmm. feels racist or anti-racist these days. And that's, that's mm-hmm. sometimes what worries me. Right. Um, mm-hmm. Especially yeah, no, I see that. expecting kids to be able to figure out what that really means when they're being told like, okay, we, we ought to treat people a certain way because of their skin, even if it's like to say we should treat them, I don't know, more uh, graciously, right? It, it, mm-hmm. Which would seem, you know, it's just. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, I think what you're trying to present is almost like a, the tension between um, needing to be aware of our history, right? And understand how that has created the conditions we're currently living in. Mm-hmm. And like, that's the argument for educating students um, on the history of race in our country, right? And, mm-hmm. and helping them understand and make sense of interpersonal interactions based on that history. Mm-hmm. But yeah, then the other side of it is you don't want to, um, you know, students are socialized to a certain degree, you know, mm-hmm. like they are, like you said, absorbent. Um, you know, when you're younger, there's no one that is, you know, you have no way to take yourself out of certain situations if right. you don't want to be there. And mm-hmm. so, you know, then what we do educate kids on does matter because now we're shaping mindsets um, and ways of thinking that are going to play out once they become adults and, and that do reinforce, you know, our histories to a certain mm-hmm. degree. So it's like um, that there's tension between that. And I think it also is directly related, like you said, to creating the conditions for strong education at an early stage mm-hmm. because that's that's when it starts you know that right. we, we have the research and that just that i think it makes sense <laughs> the, <laughs> the logic that tells us that humans are absorbing things from you know the moment that they're born in the sense of what's crafting their understanding of the world and how it should mm-hmm. be and so you know we should put stock in that. We should make an effort to make that as high quality as possible, you know, mm-hmm. because it does have a huge effect on who people become, especially if you're in a system over time, right? right? You see the impact of being in good systems over time, bad systems over time, you know, that matters even more. Right. Yeah. And I mean, it's, it's something that at least my intent was for it to be fundamental to this, this project as a whole is that there, there of course are differences. It would be, it would be foolish to say that there are not differences between uh, groups based on certain qualities that we can maybe see with our eyes or things mm-hmm. that we can measure. Yeah. It's just that there, the null hypothesis should not be that it is anything fundamental. It's that there it's, it's cultural, it's socioeconomic, it's, it's experiential. It's yeah. Right. It has to do it's, with you, what experiences you've developed over time. No one starts with an understanding of anything, you know, right. like you've, um, you've got to get it from somewhere. Right. And so like the, the details, they do matter. And it's, it's not like it, it, everything's cut and dry and simple. And when you meet people in the world, there's not a lot to process and to understand, but as much as we can limit what we assume about an individual on the front end, based on what we see in them or things that they cannot control about themselves, the better. Mm -hmm. Um, And that, of course, like I said, there are differences at base, but most of them, because 
purely you could attribute those differences largely to things that, as you said, are socialized that happen over time that, mm-hmm. and by that fact, there are, a, there's a huge range of exception that, right. so the judgment is never fair that even though largely you might want to, it might be fair to make a certain assumption about a certain group that might actually allow you to be more sensitive to them. Mm-hmm. It's not always fair. And so, right. It just doesn't, you don't know until someone is sharing their experience, you know, mm-hmm. like that, that that's you, it can't be confirmed. You know, you can't use that as the basis for your, you know, broad decision-making because it's not going to hold necessarily. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And I mean, I think, I think it would be a, a net positive thing if that that general sentiment was more so what kids were being taught. But I I sometimes worry that it's a little bit it's a little bit too adjacent to that. But I, I could I be mean, wrong because I'm not in those spaces, right? You know, I just right. I mean, I think it's it's not even. I think the worry for me is like kids aren't getting taught nothing you know, <laughs> in that regard. You know what I'm saying? Like that. Right. That's my. That's what I see more mm. it's just straight up no discussion no right you know it just letting it because if you let something happen and develop as it has continued to develop it's nothing's mm. going to change right so to our the point of our whole conversation if you're not talking to kids about like a, a range of experience about diversity of experience um mm. about understanding people and taking them as they are while mm. also understanding what's true about history like you can do both of those but it's hard Right. Right. It's hard for us to do that Mm. and communicate it to kids, but it doesn't mean we shouldn't try to do it because Mm. that's how kids come up, you know, with a full understanding of what's going on here. You know, Mm. that's how they ask themselves, "Hmm, you know, what do I know that's true about my experience as an individual? How does that relate to some of these things I'm learning about history, um, to some of these things that, you know, I'm learning was the case in this country? Mm. Okay, well, how does my experience play into that? And what does that mean if they're different? You know, like things like mm-hmm. that. That's the conversation that has to be happening. It can't be like, you know, it can't be one-sided because then that it, in either direction is unfair to kids, you know, right. because then you're just, you're making them believe either, you know, the world is racist and there's nothing you can do about it or, mm-hmm. um, doesn't exist, doesn't matter, you right. know? And it's like, <laughs> well, <laughs> you, that neither of those are true, you know? Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. I mean, there's certainly, there's a lot of other points that I think that become a part of the equation that you just laid out in regards to how minority groups, particularly, I guess, people of color specifically, or, or even we'll just say black kids even learn to think about themselves and their place in the world based on how it's framed to them, where if you obviously wouldn't want to promote a situation in which individuals feel like the system is just irrevocably fucked and mm-hmm, that they'll mm-hmm. never be able to get ahead and that they're disadvantaged in some sort of actually fundamental way that their white peers are not. And because that that's not promoting agency, that's not promoting achievement. That's, that's making kids feel like they actually are less um, and that they ought to kind of throw their hands up in the air. And that's not, that's not generally what's being taught, but I'm just saying that um, of course it could be taken too far where individuals could, could have an understanding that is kind of self-defeating um, mm-hmm. and, and self or, or an understanding that is um, not compassionate 
mm-hmm. know, like it, it isn't, uh, you know, when you teach kids too rigidly, one thing or the other, then they don't understand people who might think something different. Mm-hmm. And that's the problem, you know, then then that was what builds resentment, hate, violence is saying, well, I don't really understand that. I disagree. It's not what I learned. It's not what I see to be true. And so now I'm, you know, now it's I'm anti this. Right. right. And it's like, well, that that's not <laughs> um that's not what we want, right? We want kids to be able to be open-minded across the board. But mm-hmm. yeah, we don't. It, it can be harmful if you're teaching them too rigidly in either direction when it comes to, you know, an understanding of race and and just how our society is set up um, for certain groups of people. Right. Yeah. And I mean, I, I largely agree with that. And I think the one caveat for me is, and it's implicit in what you're saying, is that the the point of conversation being open, honest conversation, always being put at the pinnacle of the learning experience is, is really the necessary qualifier there for me, where if individuals, as long as that happens, Mm -hmm. I I do feel as though at least, especially as kids grow older and they develop and, and you even get into the university setting, as long as that's promoted, I think the better ideas will prevail over time. And that, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm we will be able to work through things even if there is an overcorrection because I think people are, are generally pretty smart and capable and, and relatively goodwilled. Um, but if it ever gets to a point and we see this sometimes nowadays where there is, uh, people are discouraged from, from talking about certain things. People are discouraged from, broaching certain topics or even just right. saying afraid things. of saying something wrong of being wrong of what people are going to think about you you know right um i think that's now that i'm thinking about it where the real hang up for me starts to happen is that if if anyone ever starts to feel like they ought to it's too complicated or it's too risky to speak out or to just ask a question because they don't want to be labeled as something and so they just don't ask questions and they take the the short version, they take the headline and they don't search for any deeper mm-hmm. nuance is where the the better ideas don't actually have to prevail if right, right. if it's a one-sided conversation or if if certain individuals feel like it's just not worth it to be a part of the conversation. Mhm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. And I I don't know if that's necessarily as much the case in educational environments, I would hope that that is something that is promoted at base, right? I mean, that I think that's at least from what I remember when I was in school, that that was something that was pretty, pretty integral. Of course, there's always a, a, a level of insecurity that you, you might not want to speak out just because you might, you might get it wrong or you might, mm-hmm. people might laugh at you. But um, I think beyond that, it's probably more so promoted than it is on, let's just say, social media or in the political sphere right now, where it is, it is commonplace for for it be for it to be very hard for individuals to get something wrong publicly and mm-hmm. to be able to right, kind of right. walk back from that and yeah. um, f- form a better understanding and actually learn from the experience as opposed to be saying, 
no, you said the wrong thing. You got this wrong. You need to step aside and not and be no part longer of this speak anymore. on the topic. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Or no longer even try. And part of that goes back to like intention too. what people assume to be true about people's intention. You know, mm-hmm. um, if you assume that people are, you know, trying to, you know, learn or at least, um, take a risk here in a way mm. to, to share their thinking and get people's feedback on it. And if you appreciate it for that, then you can say, okay, I can accept a pretty wide range of opinions and questions and, um, you know, what, whatever you might have to be added to the conversation around, you know, race or how we should, um, teach kids in schools. But, uh, I think if you're just, you know, preventing people from, speaking just because they might say something wrong or or might say something that is inflammatory or display ignorance, mm-hmm. then it prevents those people from ever desiring to take a step further in, you know, in their learning, you know, um, to develop in any way. And so then that just makes them say, okay, well, this isn't for me. Also, it's not my problem. Right. <laughs> so now I'll just mm-hmm. go on my way. Right. You know? And they, I mean, and even worse, I feel like sometimes what happens is that, it it honestly dips below the floor in a way where it's it's not just that people throw their hands up in the air and remove themselves. It's that they no, yeah, then they, they have a resentment towards doing things like that in the future. Right. They kind of return to their echo chamber with with a degree of resentment and frustration that saying like, oh, I tried this or not doing that again. Um, clearly, that you know, yeah, you're just now you're annoyed by it almost and, and afraid or you've something's happened to kind of raise your defenses now. Mm, mm. Right. Yeah. And I mean, I think to be fair, I don't want to frame myself like as a, as a pessimist on, on these issues. <laughs> like I, I, we, we had a, a two term black president, you know, like I think that's something that like, I often right. try to remind myself that right, you forget. Is, <laughs> is such a, uh, such an incredible sign of progress, you know, uh, half a century ago, it, that would have been i don't know if anyone would have believed you everyone would have just laughed right. right even <laughs> even a dec even a year before obama was elected a lot of people were like this could never happen um <laughs> and then it did and i feel like to some people i don't know i feel like sometimes that's forgotten that like right that, that right. was a, a big moment that enough people were on board that that was not his race was not a barrier and sure, the last four years or so have been a little rough, but that we still took that step and in the relatively short amount of time since the civil rights movement, like a lot of good has happened. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. And I I guess to clarify that, if it's not already clear, I'm not saying like, because I know some people are pessimistic on this front because they feel as though this country is so fundamentally institutionally and systemically racist that mm-hmm. it will never be this problem will never be solved right. um i'm more so saying that i think it can be as long as we're careful about it and um we we calibrate over time but it is definitely one of those things that that i try to keep in focus sometimes when i get a little bogged down on these things that like that did happen. Right. You, um, you get, you get, yeah. I mean, it's easy to feel like things won't ever be different, but, um, but yeah, then you, then you, you can't ignore some of the, like you said, the, the progress that is being made and even something like Obama just winning. Some people can't just take that for what it is. Like they can't see the value just in that. Mm-hmm. 
And they are quick to either say, oh, now we have to find ways to be really critical of him, you know, right, to evaluate him to just, you know, no end, which which is good. I'm all for that. Yes, do that. Sure. Evaluate, criticize. Mm-hmm. Um, but you also, that doesn't take away from the fact that him being elected in and of itself has monumental significance in our history, right? Mm-hmm. Like he, he, those two things can be true. He can not do a great job. And still there was, you know, value in um, him simply being elected and what that meant, you know? Right. Um, but it also goes back to people like we were saying before, not being able to parse out anything, you know, no, there's no nuance. There's no multifaceted nature of any sort of, mm-hmm. um, you know, event, uh, to talk about like Obama, you know, as just one-sided as like, oh, it was just only maybe black people who just were right. voting for him because <laughs> he was black. Right. And I'm like, you're just not even thinking <laughs> yeah, hard yeah. enough about this at just all. Look at and the like, numbers, yeah. and yes, there were some black people who were voting for him just because he was black. And like, can, can I be excited about that? Yeah. <laughs> right. Like, cause black people couldn't vote and there was no black person to vote for, you know, like that's that I think is right. just exciting that that is even an option. Is that maybe the right way to be making your political decisions? Not necessarily, but like, you know, I don't know. It's it's almost, yeah, people sometimes they can't, they can't um, parse it out, you know? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's definitely difficult. And I, I, once again, I empathize with the impulse to, to not pressure these things too hard um, and to, to be satisfied with the, with the simpler answer to some of these things. But Mm -hmm. um yeah, I mean, I think it's it's a great example, and I think it's something that, like I said, it, it's helpful for me to remind myself of. And I, I get, once again, because of the last four years, or even the last year, really, a lot of people feel very um, pessimistic or just frustrated in regards to racial inequality in this country mm-hmm. and, and all of that, which is understandable. Uh, but I think there are a lot of very positive signs of improvement or even just another good example that I try to remind myself of is like still by and large, this is the, the best country in the world for, I mean, and maybe this is a controversial statement, but if you look at it just from people, as they say, voting with their feet, more black and brown people come to this country proportionally than anywhere else on the planet. And despite the problems that we have, it's still the place that when other people look at this country, they want to come here uh, despite the problems that we have more than anywhere else. So for a variety of reasons. Yeah. Mm -hmm. No, Trev says this all the time. You know, we talk about this all the time where it's like, when you also put it into a global perspective, Mm -hmm. um, there's, there, there are so many wins here that don't exist in other places at all. And like, if you went elsewhere, you'd be appalled by the things maybe that you have to now worry about that are not the case here in the United States. Right. Right. And like, you can't, you can't act like that's not true. (laughs) Right. Yeah. And of course it's not an argument to say like, well, we've just made all the progress that we need to, we we ought to settle where we are. Like, of course I, we, we can acknowledge that we're going to hold ourselves as a nation to a higher standard than we do pretty much any other country in the world because of, I mean, for lots of reasons and how we've positioned ourselves over the past century, really. Um, And sure, you could make an argument in the past four years, some of that has changed on a global scale, but I don't know that it has meaningfully in the long term. That's Mm -hmm. just my opinion. 
Um, and I still think it, it's not a thought really. It is a fact that people still want to come here more than anywhere else, regardless of their race. And I think sometimes that's to me a helpful reminder, like even when things seem worse or when racial tensions reach a, a pinnacle, like they did last year, that, um, that from an outsider's perspective, for what we do have to offer and what we do get right, it still is by the numbers the best place to be. Mm-hmm, and just mm-hmm. remembering that and being grateful for that, I think is a right. Being grateful, you know, is that that is also what I I rest in is gratitude, right? Because mm-hmm. it's like, yeah, this could be a completely different situation. Or you read about, um, you know genocide that is happening in other places based on race right Mm -hmm. and you can argue that to a degree genocide is happening here if we're going to sum the you know number of black people that are unjustifiably getting Mm -hmm. killed by police and others but you know some of the the day-to-day experiences of people in other places just you can't compare you know you know people (laughs) you're, you're just like if that was happening in the united states what, in, what on earth would people be doing, right? Mm-hmm. If people are getting cut down, gunned down in the streets, you know, raped, killed, kidnapped, and that's allowed by law, mm-hmm. right? Like that's right. that that's not the case here mm-hmm. at large, you know? And so not that we should be comparing ourselves to that and being like, well, at least we're better sure, than yeah, that. Yeah, we're right? fine. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. But it's just like, you do have to have some perspective and, um, you know, that should also make you feel motivated to, uh, improve within that because we have so much freedom to do so. You know, we have so much freedom to make things different for ourselves if we want, mm-hmm. um, and to make decisions as a country to make things better for people that, you know, it, things are possible here that are not even possible in other places at this current point, you know? Right. Yeah. yeah and I mean, I, I'm glad you brought up the point just about, uh, I mean, I guess the point of comparison about genocide in other countries and, in black people being unjustly justly killed in this country, maybe by police and maybe in the prison system, maybe in lots of ways you could argue. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. But I, I think an important point of that issue is also just a sure the relative comparisons make it seem kind of small, but just trying to have a more, analytical and and data-driven conversation about these sorts of things so that people Mm -hmm. feel like they have a firm grasp of what the issue actually looks like and also more so from the lens of how could we actually prevent these things from happening because it's it's of course an issue and but I think often the way most recently it gets talked about is more from a from a visceral reaction standpoint, um, mm-hmm. and not to simplify it, but from an emotional standpoint, that doesn't really allow for real practical solutions to emerge. And though those responses are totally understandable, it makes it very hard to do anything about stopping, you know, young black men from getting shot in the streets if if we're only looking at uh or if we're to some degree not quite looking at the the systemic contributions and the data of it so that we can really try to target these things as opposed to just having the reaction, which I of course understand. And I've spoken mm. to before. Like, Well, but, but give me an example though. I, I understand completely what you're saying, but give me an example 
of sort of those reactions that you're talking about, like these sort these um, responses that are less useful than approaching it from more of a preventive um, standpoint. Because I agree with you, but I also think it's helpful to hear like sure, what, sure, sure. You, you know what I'm talking um, about. Yeah. So I mean, just to make it uh, as clear as possible, I'll use an example that everyone's aware of with last year. Um, obviously, there was the, I guess you you could say the murder of George Floyd um, mm-hmm. that really uh caused things to to hit a pinnacle in regards to its its public awareness um Mm -hmm. and just the overall uh i guess you could say divisiveness around the issue in and of itself and how to address it um and the idea was put forward and granted i don't know where it is now maybe it's my lack of awareness or just how our political uh, landscape and attention span tends to deviate or dissipate over time, but defunding the police, disbanding the police, different versions of this were very mm-hmm. much at the forefront for a matter of months. It was something that generally people were calling for, um, at least on the left, right? Uh, mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. that something was, you know, it was a part of the protest. It was, it was part of the messaging. Uh, it was, it was part of the Black Lives Matter general movement. Um, which once again, I, I empathize where it comes from, but Mm -hmm. if you, if you go to people in the most disadvantaged crime ridden, you know, gang run communities, and you tell them that there's going to be less police presence than there already is in these communities where the police often the issue is that they are avoiding these communities because they don't want to get, they're just going to let these young black kids shoot each other. And then we're going to come collect the bodies uh, because Mm -hmm. we don't want to get involved Uh, to remove funding and resource from that situation. uh, Doesn't quite feel like a solution. And I get that that's the way I'm talking about it is maybe a little bit too simplistic, but it, but I mean, you know, it makes sense based on what also people generally understand of it, you know, like, mm-hmm. which is how most people are then, you know, applying and considering the idea. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, no, that, 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 that makes sense. Right. No one, um, you know, and I think it also, well, what you share comes down to fully understanding and thinking about what someone is saying when they're saying like defund the police or something mm-hmm. like that. Cause I think much of what is needed in this country and people don't like to hear this is a a reallocation of Mm -hmm. things to a certain degree, right? Like it's like, we don't, we have enough (laughs) um, here, enough resources, enough money, enough everything. Mm -hmm. And and so then there, there does need to be shifting of that because when you start to think about, you know, defunding the police might sound like a reactionary choice where it's Mm -hmm. like, okay, well, Let's just lessen the funding from this thing that's, you know, implicating harm and violence. And, Mm -hmm. you know, that that makes sense. But it's also getting more nuanced there and figuring out, okay, well, what what actually produces the policemen that end up making these terrible decisions about Mm -hmm. what they're doing in the moment? Right. Right. Or decisions purely based on fear or lack of experience or whatever it is or and then mixed in with some racism. Right. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Which is also, you know, that's what makes it hard to talk about is like you you don't know these individuals, Mm -hmm. um, but you're sort of assuming to a degree like ignorance or whatever. Um, Mm -hmm. But, you know, when you think about why what produces that individual at that moment, it's not just money that got put into cops. 
Mm-hmm. Right. It, it's like, where did that money go within that? Even right. um, did it go to training, um, you know, technical training and and, and um, just awareness training? You know, like what, what did your training look mm-hmm. like? What did it are you getting trained like a Navy SEAL, which you probably <laughs> should be in certain situations? Well, right. of course, the fuck you didn't. Mm-hmm. And so then, um, y- you know, that's part of the, the question, too. Right. Like just giving the police less money doesn't now mean that those who are um, in the force do any better. Right. Right. Yeah, um, I mean, and then or, or, or defunding to the point of like, you know, then, then there's the idea of abolishing, which is just remove entirely, right. um, which again is an idea. But mm. people like you, to your point, agree across the board, they would benefit um, mm. from having um, someone there to call on and take care of them when they need it and when they need mm-hmm. protection. Right. And so right. that's then it goes. It, it's just it's complex in that way. But anyone who's saying, OK, well, just take money. You know, it's like that, that, that isn't solving the problem here. It right. could be helping in many instances, but again, mm-hmm. if it's a reallocation, right. Cause you see PDs across the country getting so much money and I'm like, for what, what are you right. using this for? I'm like, cause people suck, you know? And that's, and mm-hmm. that's not like across the board, but it's just like, you clearly need some guidance with yeah. how you should be using this funding for sure. You know, and then there's some systems that should just be dismantled entirely, right? Like mm-hmm. you're looking at some PDs in, um, uh, you know, Louisville and Kentucky, for example, is just like a particularly notable um, mm-hmm. police department where it's just like wild shit has been allowed <laughs> to right. go on since the beginning. And so you mm-hmm. look at something like that and you're like, throw the whole thing out, just restart. <laughs> you know, we need something else there. Right. Um, but that, you know, that might not be the case across the board. Right. You right. couldn't apply that as like a national um, mandate. It's like, okay, now we just dis- dismantle all of these at once, you know, mm. like that obviously wouldn't make sense. So. Yeah, no, I mean, it's a, it's an incredibly complicated issue, of course. And it's something I've, I've been engaged in a decent amount over the past year. I mean, I think everyone has to some extent because it did get very much pushed to the forefront and it was clear that change was needed. Right, which I think is is fundamentally a very good thing that that came to the forefront. Um, and to clarify my point a little bit, I don't mean to like straw man the argument for it. It, it of course, the idea is to take funding away so that we can put funding into maybe more, uh, I guess, community focused or mm-hmm. mental health or holistically focused uh, programs, which. Which, in general, of course, those things need more funding. Like Jesus fucking Christ, they do, um, board, yeah. in in every way. But um, at the same time, it's it's kind of one of those things where there's there's once again what I spoke to earlier. There's a disconnect where you take some people where let's just say they have a certain degree of privilege and their idea of what a community might look like where the police don't have a monopoly on violence. Um, versus someone who actually lives in a community where gangs have a monopoly on violence, that mm-hmm. they're just very different perspectives. Of course. And yeah. the you could argue a part of the reason why gangs have a monopoly on violence in, in certain communities and where black men are dying at much higher rates than they're being killed by the cops is communities in which the police presence is so fucking just awful and 
Mm. As I said, they avoid it. They're incompetent. They stay away Among from these other areas. things, right, right? Right. And then, and then you just ask the question: How did this space even come to be? Where, right, where there there are these communities that um, now the police want to avoid for X, Y, Z reasons. And then you just open up the can of worms to you know the the source of all other social ills, right? Like you just, you right. take it from there. Yeah, you know, it's um, it's definitely tough. I mean, it's like, I mean, you could argue that that gangs in their uh, initial form were a, a response to a lack of successful police presence where it was maybe more of a originally positive and community focused uh, creation in which people felt the need to come together to protect each other because the police didn't give a shit about them. Um, Mm -hmm. And that when someone, you know, came to your house and killed your cousin, the cops were not going to investigate that. So, of course, you have to take matters into your own hands. And right. That- and just this idea of um, protection in numbers, right? Mm-hmm. Like that you need, uh, you know, it's like the mafia, right? The whole argument behind the mafia of you are gaining protection by buying into this mass right. that, yeah, that was- all just, you know, benefits from the same protection, which is like each other, the system you've created for each other, you know? Right. Yeah. I mean, naturally these sorts of power vacuums arise when there's not enough stability and a a monopoly on, on violence, which is what, which is why we have the police and you can make some arguments about that. But at base, I think most people can agree that we would want the state to have that and that for it to not be something that's like democratized into communities where people have to try to seek their own justice in the streets as opposed oh, of to of course of course right system. I don't think anyone would 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 say that that is preferred either you know except for in Texas maybe no, I'm playing. <laughs> uh, um right. you know but where there's just like we want the wild west and everybody you know we want um what's that show um, we want Westworld, right? Where, oh, right. <laughs> you know, everybody's taking it into their own hands at all times. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, I think you would need to actually though, rethink the whole function of policing in the country, you know, right. because the root of its function already came from like a problem, like, like at its base, right. why it was developed exactly. was now an issue, mm-hmm. you know? So you're, you're needing to just say, oh, well, we understood this to be for we're going to change this whole idea and actually make mm-hmm. it about um, protecting communities and uh, making communities feel safe and feel like they have resources when um, people are not abiding by these laws that we've agreed on, you know, benefit everyone universally or something like mm-hmm. that. Right. Like that now needs to become the core mission. Um, and it's just not. Right. You know? So, this, so yeah. then there, there, therein lies the argument of there does need to be some, abolishing and restarting to a degree, right? You, you have to break down a something's foundation, mm-hmm. you know, now to, to, um, in order to repurpose it, mm-hmm. uh, that I think is more what would be required, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's, it, it's definitely a fair point. And I think when, when an institution has the roots that our, our police departments do, it's, it's hard to imagine how we could, easily reform it um without without really getting down to the the fabrics of its of its being at base um i think it's in some ways it relates back to what we've already talked about in regards to teachers that and maybe this is second order thinking so maybe <laughs> I'm, I'm i'm moving beyond what needs to actually happen first because if 
maybe uh, if we existed in a world where we were starting from a better baseline, it might be easier to make these changes. But to the the fact of the situation now is that in a lot of circumstances, uh, already police departments generally struggle to recruit. And a lot of the people that end up becoming police officers, and uh, I don't mean to paint too broad strokes, but we don't want a situation in which it feels like some sort of kind of under-motivated last resort kind of job where people who right. who have no other options are like, ah, I'll just become a cop because right. the training that, isn't that very is, hard. That, that, that is though. That's what I'm saying. That is how <laughs> it is, yeah. Right, right, um, right. That's exactly how it is. And then you're just like, who the hell let this guy be a cop? You know, like, like you know, I think it really should be set up. Not that the army and our, you know, variety of uh, forces that we have are just universally great and they kill it when it comes to preparing people and creating the right mindsets needed to lead and protect and serve actually. Mm-hmm. But, you know, it has to be more like that, right? right. You have there, you have to require a, a tier of, you know, intelligence and passion and commitment to, to communities, right. To the mm-hmm. people that you're going to protect and serve, like that has to be present and a qualifying factor to be even allowed to, to do this. And then you've got to be treated as such, right. You've got to be held mm-hmm. to this bar that is, you know, really outstanding because you're asking them to, you know, be selfless to a certain degree and say, oh, Mm -hmm. I'm going to put my efforts into protecting my community and making sure that, you know, I'm upholding common good, right? right? That takes a noble type of person that takes an intelligent type of person that takes passion, you know, and um, right now it's like, you know, maybe I could just go do that right now. Right. <laughs> Maybe I could just go sign up, you know, yeah. <laughs> like that's, yeah, that's how I it mean... seems sometimes. Um, and it's not just by accident mm-hmm. <laughs> also. And then that that's the other part of it. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's it's definitely a bit of a stereotype, but generally it, it seems to be true and it's unfortunate. But it's like mm-hmm. if that if that is the sort of incentive structure that exists in a system, mm-hmm. then, of course, these problems are going to arise. Similar to what we were talking about in education, where if if you don't build out the right incentive structure over time, you're, you're just going to see the fruits of that. And so if, if we don't hot hold these officers to a higher standard, their training isn't more thorough and rigorous, if they don't know how to go hands-on with someone without fucking right. shooting them, then like that- you can't <laughs> be out here, yo. That seems fundamental to me. I'm like, like I feel like in- and again, to just make another, you know, connection to the army. But when you think of like military training, you know, you're getting reprimanded for shooting off your gun, you know, willy nilly. Like there has mm-hmm. to, you have to have like reasons for that, unless this is part of like an exercise, right? But right. but like when you you have to validate each of your decision making points, mm-hmm. right? With with some something that you've learned or you know what is best practice. Yeah. And so you know the fact that you don't even have to do that here, mm-hmm. it's like oh well you know, the only thing you have to say is you needed to protect yourself. Mm-hmm. And it's like, uh, <laughs> we have yeah. to have a more criteria than that. Mm-hmm. Like, why is it just that? In that case, let me do it. Like, that's the same reason why I would be doing that. Mm-hmm. You know, is uh, that's the same argument that I would make as a complete, you know, lay person. Um, so yeah, there's, there's gotta be, there's gotta be a lot more that goes into helping, you know, a police a person who chooses to be a policeman or woman, you know, to feel like this is valuable, that this was challenging to do, right? Like they had mm-hmm. to work to get accepted into sort of this elite, 
you know, mm. not elite, that's not the right word, but you know, like a, like a force of people who's saying like, yes, I commit to this and I, I'm ready for it, you know? Right. Yeah. I mean, I, I certainly agree. And I guess to, to bring it around, I would say it, it seems hard to imagine a world in which we're able to establish higher standards, better, more thorough training, better incentive structures within our police mm. force that also is congruous with less funding, right? I mean, it just, and it, it definitely could be possible, but it mm. just, it seems like that would be a harder thing for, it would be hard for those two things to coexist. And it could, it, it certainly could, and it would require some creativity and some people who are actually passionate and motivated in these spaces to solve these problems. Um, but it just seems, oh, but I guess the other point I was going to make is that, and it's maybe just a downstream consequence that we can, we can only do so much about, but like nobody wants to be a cop anymore now. And that, Mm -hmm. that sucks. It's, it's not like we don't talk about these issues because we don't want people to like shy away from being a cop. But now it's, it's like the, the individuals who are still like interested in joining law enforcement right now, it's even a worse sample size than it was before in theory. Right. Because although, it's like, although, although you might argue that maybe hopefully, you know, some of those people are the right people that we're looking for, right? Because they're seeing that they, you know, that this is something that's fucked right now mm-hmm. in that, you know, they have the right intention, the passion, the desire to make it what it should be. And so then now they're still persisting in like, joining and adopting Mm. and that's only part of the people because then the other part of the people are probably coming because they understand that what it is right now is what they want actually Mm. and and they're just power grabbing they're in it because they know it gives them control to act out their own um prejudice discrimination uh insecurity whatever it is and so so it's probably both Mm -hmm. (laughs) yeah i mean that's definitely a more optimistic way of looking at it and you very well may be right um, I, I try to resist my more pessimistic impulses sometimes, uh, <laughs> that, that, that sort of situation would, would generally produce or at least discourage even locally, um, in a, in a county across from mine, there was a situation in which like, you know, we had a, a black woman who was a police commissioner who stepped down amidst all of what was going on. Uh, because people in the community felt like she wasn't doing enough on this front mm-hmm. and maybe they were right. I, I won't get into the nuance of it because it's not relevant to everyone, uh, at least not locally, but it was a situation where it just like, it was kind of sad to me where I was like this, you know, this woman who historically seems to have done a great job and who seems to be this very competent, intelligent mm-hmm. person who, would you would think would be able to offer an important perspective and you don't see a lot of black women in a role like that and that people weren't able to have maybe just a little bit more empathy or give her a little bit of grace in the situation to maybe be mobile over time or be more agile and make the necessary changes that there was Mm -hmm. enough kind of public outcry and criticism that That she just she just was like i'm just gonna do something else because it's not worth Right. It's uh, not even worth my time. But in that and that's the danger, you know, that comes from people just adopting something without 
really, you know, just like, like, like you, like we're talking about adopting something just at face value saying, well, if we say abolish police, if we say defund the police, and that means police in every situation, everywhere, all the time, you know, and then you don't allow for anybody who is in it for the right reasons to now like be there for that reason. Right. Mm -hmm. Not to say that I know for sure she was, who knows, I don't even know this lady, but you know, just from like, like if she was here from the perspective of like, I'm going to be a black woman in this space, which is so very rare. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to try and do my best by this community. Um, But then, you know, if people just adopt universally, okay, police are bad. Mm -hmm. And like, we should just remove the structure that how does it impact, you know, everybody who's currently involved in it. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a very, it's a very tricky issue. And I think what I was trying to get to originally was just that with what happened to George Floyd last year, like Mm -hmm. there is that totally understandable impulse to say this, this ought to never happen again. A situation like this ought to never happen again. Mm -hmm. And, and how do we get there? Well, of course, if, if there were no police, this could never happen. And no one's, nece- I mean, right. I don't know, maybe some people are saying that, but most people aren't saying that. But right. if you kind of work backwards from what it would just clearly take to make sure that nothing like this ever happened again, um, it's it's a noble thing to want. But at the same time, it's just hard to get from that place to what would it actually take to to make this sort of thing less likely, but also can we look at how exactly how prevalent prevalent it is right now and what that really looks like community to community, as, mm. you know, like it, because I right, think there's, right. and I won't get into it because it's, it, it's maybe hard to talk data. I think people should maybe more so just look into it. And uh, I guess on the air, it doesn't translate as well, but mm. I'll just say, I think some of the data on this front would be very surprising to some people in regards to who generally gets unarmed individuals who get shot by the cops and the demographics of those individuals and of the cops. I think it would surprise a lot of people. Oh, of course, of um, course, right. Like people would think it's just as, you know, divided along racial lines, right? Like mm-hmm. that's like a basic way to think about it. Um, and then you just see, well, Nope, it actually varies quite a bit or or really, really is consistent across, you know, maybe policemen at large Mm -hmm. um, and and less so around like lines of race, you know, Mm. within policemen. Right. right? Um, And so then that's speaking to a different, you know, but related issue when it comes to how, you know, who who the police are and how they're being trained, how they're being prepared on what the whole idea of policing, you know, should be. Mm hmm. Yeah. And I mean, I think it's one of those things where, uh, similar to what we spoke to earlier about kind of Kendi's ideas and that, that null hypothesis of inequality equals racism, that I think just as we, in a way, should be open to the idea that all of the problem has to do with race, we also should be open to the idea that none of it is. And that I of course think it's somewhere in between, but mm-hmm, that mm-hmm. we should explore with as little bias as possible and say, what if we came across data that said that as we just kind of spoke to, it's it doesn't really fall ac- across racial lines and that what we thought was a trend because of uh, 
what we generally see and what we know historically isn't as much as what we thought. How does it change how we try to address these issues? Right, right, And it right, does right. absolutely fundamentally change how you would try to address them. So that's kind of what I was getting to from the start, that if we can mm-hmm. carry as little bias as possible into the the data analysis and the problem analysis and say, sure, we, we have an idea of what we think might be going on here, but let the let the data and let what we can measure tell us what it can before we jump to conclusions about how we ought to fix it. Um, right. right. Is, yeah. It has to be, it has to always be a combination of both what, you know, that quantitative data, right. What's really happening. Um, and then also, you know, what are the things that contribute to this pattern of data, right? What are some of maybe those qualitative things that do contribute to data that now plays out in this way? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and then that's that's sometimes a a more useful way to think about it is less than like what is the motivation of any given cop, mm-hmm. right? Any individual cop, and more about okay, how did policing come to be? And you know, okay, can we? What can we do now to reverse or unravel or um, you know change that? You know, it's hurt when it comes to its purpose and function and how, like I said, people are prepared, right? Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, definitely. I think that that puts a solid, solid bow on that on that topic in general. Um, I, I certainly appreciate your time and I want to be respectful of it. So there are a couple of things I want to pivot to before yeah. before we finish up. Um, more relating to the the more basic essence of this project and and uh the concerns that some that most people I feel like share in regards to their, I guess maybe self-worth or their identity and, and things of that nature. Uh, And a question that I feel like maybe relates to you in a unique way. Maybe it doesn't, but I'm just curious if you've ever felt burdened by, by the implications of, of your alumni status and and where you went to school and Mm -hmm. what people tend to, assume about you because of that or like what you expect of yourself Mm. uh, as far as your your future and and all of that based on this kind of uh, not not that it's arbitrary by any means but by this one variable Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. yeah I think that's a good question I think um, I actually don't feel so you know burdened by it ever in the sense of um, you know I see it as a as a net positive and something that has brought, you know, value to my life. And so like there, there's no sense of it's only opportunity. Mm-hmm. Right. I think that it was on the other side of getting to, you know, go to a, to receive a higher education, you know, to go to college at all, um, to go to an elite college. Uh, I do think it's, it's certainly, I can't say that it isn't something that has helped affirm for me um, mm-hmm. what I'm capable of. Right. I couldn't say, oh, that doesn't matter at all, because I just came with an understanding that it's all in myself. Mm -hmm. Right. And that I have what I need to thrive and be excellent. Um, So it certainly has done some affirming there. Like I value it for that reason, too, because, you know, it it gives you a confidence boost. You're like, yes, I can thrive uh, in, in these spaces. And here's what this affords me. And here's what it means I'm capable of. But of course, it certainly isn't an end all be all. Right. Like it doesn't. I think I've learned more and more as I've gotten older, how much of it um, almost doesn't have an impact (laughs) on Mm -hmm. 
how successful you are after that. You know, um, I think I see people who I went to school with that just end up in so many different spaces. And a lot of it has to do with who they are and who they're around and how, you know, the set of ideas that they now hold on to that dictates, you know, what they do next and how they use their experiences from Brown, for example, Mm. or their experiences from college at all. Um, And I think probably that's changed over time. You know, like I think when I was in college, you have a whole a much larger, you know, idealistic view of what this is affording you, mm-hmm. you know, and then you get right. into the real world and you're like, okay, here's where it does have value, but here's where it doesn't matter at all. And, you know, mm. people who don't have the same set of experiences as me end up in the same place. And I'm like, hmm, you know, you say why, or how did that happen? You know? Um, so you start to see how it all plays out, uh, I think post-college, but um, wait, I feel like there was a second part to your question that I'm missing. Oh, um, I mean, I think you were answering it generally. I think maybe an implicit part of that question that I was curious about is, I guess, maybe going back to your time there mm-hmm. and something I've heard other people who who have been in similar envi- environments maybe speak to is just having this, a little bit of a struggle with imposter syndrome in regards to mm-hmm. just like deserving to be there or or feeling like it was... Uh, because it tends to be this this prestigious label that we we certainly and in some ways maybe more so than it actually maps onto the practical as you were speaking to we have these ideas right. about what it means to go to an Ivy League university um, but yeah I was just curious if that was something that you ever in your time mm-hmm. there you, you doubted yourself or and I at least from what I understand it's not like you necessarily ever struggled there. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that would maybe make it a little bit easier to fall into thoughts like that. But I was just curious. Yeah, it's it, it's interesting um, because I think that experience is true for a lot of people, mm-hmm. right? Um, a lot of people that might have come from a similar background as ours, right? Or a lot of people that maybe look like us um, would say, yeah, this is my experience. I felt totally out of place or I felt like I was being blocked off in some ways from fully accessing it or thriving in a university setting because of, you know, X, Y, Z reasons. Um, but it's, it's just funny. I think for me personally, I just came into it with a lot of confidence. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, you know, I try to think about where that came from. I guess I say, okay, it came from somewhere in high school, you know, being successful there. But I also think it's almost like, uh, it, it's an inner confidence to a degree, you know, mm-hmm. I, that maybe that sounds corny. Cause it's like, yeah, I'm just, so confident. <laughs> I just thrived off of my confidence. That's how I won. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, but it's like, I don't know. It, it, it's somewhere along the way. Maybe I, we can give credit to, to mom and dad to a degree or something mm-hmm. um, of helping me believe that I really truly do deserve to be any space that I'm in. And mm-hmm. like, I can be equipped to, to thrive there because, mm-hmm. um, you know, maybe because of my intelligence, because of my passion, because of my, um, maybe understanding of myself as being, mm-hmm. you know, multifaceted and like, there's things that are great about me and there's things that are not, and there's ways that I thrive and there's, you know, things I'm not good at. Um, just understanding that to be true about others as well. Mm-hmm. So then you get into the space and you're like, Oh, okay. You know, some people really shocked me with their mm-hmm. academic intelligence. I'm like, wow, you know, I don't, I don't have that same, you know, acuity maybe, 
But then you just see others and you're like, oh, you're here for an entirely different reason. Like the way you <laughs> ended up here, it, it actually doesn't have to do with your academics. It's just something else. Mm. And so here you are now, you know, like you, you could be anyone else that I knew, mm-hmm. you know, in some ways. And I think that helps you start to understand, okay, it's not, there's nothing to be afraid of here. Mm. I never felt like fearful that I wasn't going to be successful, you know, because of where I came from. Mm. Um, and I think that that, that is necess- that's unique, I think, you mm-hmm. know, because a lot of people that I spoke to or even just my friends would say, well, no, that wasn't how it was set mm-hmm. up to be for me. You know, I came here and, and, and I had lots of friends that I knew that struggled quite a bit that were in and out of school for various reasons um, mm-hmm. that couldn't, you know, adapt to certain things that are required. Uh, and it made sense why you were like, yeah, that makes sense why I would struggle with that, too. But I also felt like, you know. I was, I was blessed to a degree to not experience that. Mm -hmm. Um, I think the times when I did maybe, maybe question the value of being there, Mm. um, sometimes was just thinking, okay, how does this, you know, how are the things that I'm interested in, Mm -hmm. you know, actually translate to what's needed to survive in the real world? You know, like sometimes you get to a higher education space, especially someplace like Brown, uh, you just, everything gets too theoretical mm-hmm. sometimes, you know, and you're, you're talking about these ideas, you're talking about all these things that you want to do mm-hmm. in the world. And then it's like, okay, well, what does that look like though? When you're finally done with this, you know, <laughs> everything can't be this, there's not space to talk about all these, um, theoretical isms, in the real world all the time. And there Mm -hmm. should be, but it's like, that's just not true everywhere. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think that's sometimes where I was like, well, you know, if I was paying for this and I was lucky to not be able, not lucky, but to not Mm -hmm. have to pay uh, for my education uh, made me also think sometimes like if I was paying for this, would I pay for it? You know, like that'd be a good spend of my money. Probably not, especially how much Mm -hmm. Brown costs, you know, but, um, yeah. And thinking about it for that reason, like, is, is any of this really required to now go thrive in, in the workplace Mm -hmm. or in any other setting? Um, certainly helpful, but you know, is it required, you know, a different, a different conversation? Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I guess to jump back to your original point, I, I don't think it's corny. I mean, I think it's, I'm certainly happy for you in that sense. I've always known you to be a, to be a generally confident person. And I think that's served you very well. And sure. It's, it's sometimes hard to figure out like any other attribute, like where exactly it came from, or (laughs) if it's just something that's natural or something that was developed or learned or socialized. I'd like to think some of it is innate. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Uh (laughs) It, it certainly seems so on some level, but yeah, I mean, I think that, often can make all the difference and sure it doesn't necessarily help an individual who's not right Mm -hmm. um to try to build a sense of of confidence and self-esteem but there certainly are ways to do that even if it's not something Mm -hmm. that you do naturally and it's something i talk about sometimes at least from a self-esteem perspective is that it a lot of it comes from at least from the ideas i've been exposed to is just having a some sort of a an ethical framework for life and being able to adhere to that is how individuals over time are able to build self-esteem or confidence is that they 
they feel as though they're living in accord with their values for whatever that looks like. And mm-hmm. um, obviously that can be very different individual to individual. And sometimes you could argue it's, it's, uh, it's not even necessarily positive or it's misplaced because maybe you could find people who have a, a really fucked up set of ideals or principles, but since they're adhering to them, they feel like they have this sense of confidence that they are able to move through life with that helps them, even though you might not agree with their principles, they have them and they adhere to them. And that is what allows them to kind of move through life as you seem to have in general, feeling mm-hmm. like you have a certain belief in yourself and your ability and your, in the fact that you deserve to be where you are. Um, so I think it's, it's fundamentally a good thing how you get there can be very different. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's definitely interesting to to hear you say that. And mm-hmm. also to acknowledge that, that a lot of your peers did not feel that way mm-hmm. and that there was kind yeah. of a, a gap there in some sense, but. And I think, you know, I mean, maybe to tie it back to what we've been talking about when it comes to education and early education, I think what obviously also plays a massive factor is the foundation, right? Right. Like the fact that that has been true, that I've been told that I can to a degree, mm-hmm. most of my educational experience, like right. that in and of itself is also unique. Mm-hmm. And so like that, that matters quite a bit, mm-hmm. you know, like there, there weren't explicit times in my education outside of like circumstances mm-hmm. where, um, you know, I felt like, I was not going to be able to do well or mm-hmm. that people didn't believe that I would do well. Mm-hmm. You know, and I think that matters quite a bit um, when you think of setting the foundation for someone to be able to, you know, thrive in college or at work or anywhere else as they get older. It's like how, what you're being told is possible about yourself um, mm-hmm. really from the earliest stages, right. you know? Yeah. No, I mean, it's, it's super important. And I certainly, can relate to that in a lot of fronts. I, I do. It is something I at least have talked about a good amount in this project as a whole, as I feel like I was very much set up at a young age to have certain capacities that I can't really uh, pat myself on the back for, like, or really mm-hmm. claim that I did anything to develop, right. but that circumstantially, because I was invested in by a lot of people and a lot of sacrifices were made for me to to go where I went to school and to to do the sorts of things that I did and to be in the sorts of spaces that I was that, that in, in the end made, made a great deal of difference. It's not like I'm sitting on mountain high now, but I've, I've done okay in life in my own estimation. And a lot of it does come down to what you're saying is just having, being told that you're, you're capable and and being able to explore whatever you want to explore. And I always felt supported that whatever I wanted to do, I, I made some changes. I, I switched, I switched schools. I switched majors. I I had to get there in an unorthodox way, but I always felt supported in that sense. Um, and so it's, it's of course hard to, to find that for everyone. And to, I think the idea is that education or educational environment should be that for the individuals that don't have it at home. And just, it just should be that. mm -hmm. Yeah. Right. (laughs) One of the places, like if you're going to someplace primarily to learn, part of what you should be learning is, you know, unlimited potential and capacity, 
Mm-hmm. Because how else are you going to unlock that in a person, right? right? right. You know, like how else are you going to even see someone um, reach what's possible if they don't believe that it, you know, it can be true. Right. Uh, and and that, that should be present across the board in any like educational space, regardless of what is being taught or, mm-hmm. you know, the structure, how it's set up, who's doing the teaching, right? You know, it, what matters is is that like, love of learning built through this idea that, you know, I can learn and grow and change and create things for Mm -hmm. myself um, that I think is pretty fundamental. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I I agree totally. Um, And to just put, I guess, a little bit of topspin on the original question, I wonder for you, and it might not be any different, this is kind of an assumption, but given your background, if you feel like it's more difficult for you to not kind of play the the comparison game, if you will, that being in an environment where, once again, I'm assuming that you had a lot of high achievers around you and people who went mm-hmm. on to do quote unquote big things with their lives. Mm-hmm. Do you do you sometimes feel like there's a disproportionate pressure or like just a, a comparison looking at others and saying, oh, look, you know, we, we were in a similar program or this was my peer, mm-hmm. you know, five years ago or, or 10 years ago. And now look what they're doing. And it's a game that everyone plays to some extent, especially on social right, media, right. where it's it's very hard to not get sucked into not do that. Yeah. To what you ought to be doing based on your background. Um, but I'm just curious if you feel like that is something that you feel more so because of your your environment at the time, or if you, you feel like maybe it's just kind of similar to everyone else's experience. Yeah, I mean, I think um, it, it probably looks different, but it's similar to everyone's experience to that degree in the sense of, you know you're all, you're comparing yourself to others that were in your circle, right. In Mm -hmm. your bubble, um, at all times, you know, whether you're trying to do that or, or not. Um, and part of that like is driven by social media and these ways where we can keep track of what anybody's doing at any given time. Um, but, uh, I do think there is certainly a pressure, just this idea that you should be doing something well, Mm -hmm. right. You know, like that, whatever you're getting into, um, you, you would be surprised to see people, you know, leave Brown or, or any place like this and then fail, mm-hmm. right? Whatever you're going to define as failing, but just inactivity would be surprising, right? Like someone mm-hmm. who's now choosing not to do anything with it. Um, but yeah, people expect you then to, to come with a certain level of baseline, I think, intelligence or, um, ability to succeed, you mm-hmm. know, um, I do think that it's interesting because you do see the different types of things that people get involved in. And sometimes you always feel like, well, maybe there's more that I could be doing or I could Mm -hmm. be doing differently um, or look at how much, you know, money people are making in certain other spaces. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think, you know, it's not so much like a negative comparison of just like, oh, that's that's possible. You know, mm. because I I also feel deeply that any of those things could have been or are possible for me. Right. You know, that I choose to now decide that that's what I want. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and maybe that goes back to some of my own like beliefs, like I said, mm. like these fundamental beliefs about myself and and what I could be right. doing at any given moment. Where like I see opportunity to to go in any direction. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when I see someone who's maybe doing really big things in finance or in tech or as a lawyer or completing med school, I'm like, yeah, fuck yeah, I could be doing that. Yeah. I'm not, but like I could, you know, so it doesn't make me feel like, 
oh, now I need to compare myself in a negative way. Mm-hmm. Um, what I do see more is just people doing things maybe because they feel like they should be um, mm-hmm. in ways that aren't always unlocking passion, you right. know? So that I see, you know, even just in my friend group, you know, people's experiences of doing something because they thought it was going to be lucrative or what mm-hmm. was expected, whatever it is. And then now feeling a little bit disillusioned, right? At, you know, a couple of years down the road, right? I'm nearly six years out of college. So, you know, when you think about that, then people get to this stage and they're like, oh shit, like I, <laughs> I don't really want to keep doing this forever. You know, mm-hmm. like I don't, um, or even just with Ababa to use her as an example. Have you met her before? Um, I believe so briefly, but graduation, right? Like when I graduated one Mm -hmm. time, um, but yeah, even with her, you know, she's someone who came out of school and went right into finance. You know, she, Mm -hmm. she's been working at Morgan Stanley that whole time and, um, successful, uh, but also feeling like this is not really what I signed up for, you know, like these, these ideas of what I wanted to do with my financial knowledge, wealth management, whatever it might be, are just not things that I'm going to get a chance to do anytime mm-hmm. soon or just in this environment, mm-hmm. you know? Um, and so then it's, it prompts her to be like, whoa, I need to reevaluate this and, and sort of do something entirely different. And I do see um, that happening to people, mm-hmm. right? If, if they haven't really used maybe their, their values or, or maybe they, they just made a mistake, right? They thought something was going to be true. And then they, once they, you right. only realize once you get into it, like, mm-hmm. oh shit, it's not like this. Definitely. <laughs> um, um, so I do see that happening to a degree. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, that's a, that's a helpful point to, to draw reference to. I think in general, I guess it's a compliment. I, I feel like you have a pretty healthy perspective on, on most of this. I guess I haven't found a, a chink in your armor yet, but. Oh. Um, <laughs> I don't know he's looking for chinks. No, no. I, <laughs> I mean, it's, it's mostly a joke, but yeah. yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, like I said, I'm I'm certainly I think it's wonderful that that you seem to have through your general perspective and 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 self worth and belief that you've insulated yourself from a lot of these issues that other people often run into given a similar experience. But I think maybe just to give a little bit of an edge to it, I'm I'm curious if there's anything with all of that in mind that you feel like you maybe historically have fallen victim to or, or succumbed to from a, just from an overall uh, mindset standpoint, or maybe not even particularly in that sense, but just something that you find you often feel the need to work on or uh, that sometimes is your, a little bit of your default that can be detrimental that you tell yourself that isn't necessarily true or helpful that, that sometimes you feel like holds you back. Um, I think sometimes maybe just this idea of wasting time. Mm. Sometimes, you know, like you feel like I'm, I feel like I'm someone who tries to really see value in all of my experiences. And so, you know, seeing them as learning opportunities, you know, not really having this idea that you're wasting time anywhere as Mm -hmm. long as you are really learning more about, you know, what, who you are and what you really want to do and be. Mm-hmm. But sometimes I feel like, you know, I, I almost get an itch to, to move on to something else or something new because I right. quickly realize when something isn't really like meeting my standards of, of 
what I, you know, mm-hmm. what I wanted to be and what I wanted to mean for me or my potential within that, you know? Right. Um, so sometimes I think it makes me be like, oh, you know, like, is this, is it isn't working or is this worth my time mm-hmm. without necessarily wanting to see it through, um, develop it further. And, and it's interesting because that doesn't really play out in my actions, right? Like if you look at my maybe job history, right? I mm-hmm. stayed in the same school, that I started in for five years. Right. So if right. you look at a young person, you might say, Oh, yeah, staying, doing something for five years, that's significant, especially right. early on in your career. Um, but you know, it, it's not for having like these questions, this thought of restlessness. Like if mm-hmm. I, am I wasting my time somewhere by not exploring my potential elsewhere, mm. you know? Um, and sometimes I think that that might hold me back from really thinking, um, about how valuable some of those experiences are or what I'm really learning from it. Or even mm-hmm. like with my current job right now, quickly realizing, you know, I think this job has taught me a lot about also what I don't want mm-hmm. as a career. Um, and so then as a result of that, I'm like, okay, you know, I've learned I'm ready for right. something new, mm-hmm. right? Well, it, does that really make sense? Probably not. And have I fully gotten everything that I can from this? No, mm-hmm. you know, inevitably. Um, and it doesn't really necessarily hold me back, but I think it makes me sometimes you know, get over something too quick where I'm like, okay, mm-hmm. I'm over this. I'm on to the next thing. Right. Like I can do X, Y, Z things, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and sometimes my mind will just go on that where I'm just like thinking about all the things I'm not doing mm-hmm. uh, as opposed to then like focusing on w- where I'm at, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I certainly can relate to that. And it's, it's something I've, I feel like I've put a decent amount of work into in the past couple of years, because I think by default, I, I try to be a, what you might call a productive person, or maybe I even put some unnecessary pressure on myself to, to be that. And so I do often find myself, I think a lot of people can relate to this, that I, some days I'll just feel like I'm in a hurry the whole time, Oh yeah. which oh, yeah. is, it's not making me go any faster, really. Like it's not, if you look at it at the end of the day, maybe I'm, I'm saving a few seconds here and there, but ultimately like I'm not, I'm not changing outcomes in a super meaningful way, but it's just like this sense of urgency that I feel like Mm -hmm. is important and sometimes is valuable in certain contexts for sure. Even years ago, I worked in a restaurant, I I bartended, it was the people thrive in that sort of space by having that sort of mentality uh, because there's always something to do and you're always mm-hmm. on to the next and there's always five things in your head that you're you're having to keep track of. But on the day to day, it sometimes results in a level of stress and just tension that isn't necessary. That if it's mm-hmm. like, even though, like, let's just say I'm, I'm late for work one day and I'm, I'm running five minutes late, I'll get myself in a state of stress that isn't going to get me to work faster. But in the moment, I'm just like, ah, fuck, I'm late. Like I, there's still things I need to do. And so I'm, I'm trying to just move through tasks, but I just, I try to catch myself. And I think some of my meditative practices help with that. Mm of just having that moment to realize like, dude, you, you don't feel good right now. Like this is not a, this is not a good way to be at base and you don't helping me also solve this problem, the source of it. Right. You know? Sure. It's, it's very detached from the utility at a certain point. Um, but to your point, I, I do often find myself, and once again, it's something I've been working on, but it can be difficult in moments to, to establish the actual utility of things that, that aren't as 
tangible in their value that maybe you need to just take an hour to not do anything or to decompress and that there's value in that, even though you're not getting anything done in the more conventional sense that being able to just go for a walk or spend time with a loved one or mm-hmm, just mm-hmm. do nothing to unravel could allow you to be more productive in later in the day or the week or whatever. Right. And might ensure it, you know, really is, right. is, is like we, we actually have the data, the information that tells us that that is true, right. Mm-hmm. By taking intentional times to not do or not think about, you know, some of the things that you spend the bulk of your day thinking about, is beneficial. It's just actually acting on it, you know, in practice. (laughs) Right. Yeah. I mean, it's, you're, you're definitely right. And it is, it is beneficial. We, we know, and taking breaks is important, even just as a, a basic principle, but I think in a lot of environments it's not promoted. And I think sometimes it's, it's just hard to sit with that when you do have something urgent to do or something that you really even care about that you're working on. And it's hard not to be like, I should be dedicating every moment that I'm not Mm -hmm. doing something else to this thing. Um, But also, I guess to your even broader point about feeling like sometimes there's an impulse to, to always want to maybe improve things or find a better situation for yourself, Mm -hmm. which I feel like is, in, in many ways, a good thing. But for me also, I can struggle with it in a sense that it's, it makes it a little more difficult at times to consider the fact that, or even just ask yourself the question of, mm-hmm. do I have everything that I need right now? Is it, right. Is, right. is the present actually perfect in, a, in an imperfect way that I could just sit with an acceptance of everything that I have right now, everything mm-hmm. that I am right now? And be at peace with that and happy with that without that demotivating me or making me empathetic, like just striking right, that balance. Right. <laughs> um, it, it's, you know, to me, it's, it's the biggest problem of life is, is, is balancing those two forces and right. being able to find a sense of, of peace and equanimity and acceptance in life and having a certain mindfulness and awareness while also wanting to improve and to progress and to mm-hmm. move through life in a way that that better suits you over time uh mm-hmm. it's it's of course there's there's no firm answer to that and that's that's just kind of life is is figuring that out for yourself but right ultimately i, I certainly can relate to that that impulse of of kind of always maybe turning or just being very aware of what what could be better mm-hmm, mm-hmm. right i think it's like a it's a motivating force, right? And then it's also sometimes prevents you from being quite present. And so it's needing to, you know, balance both of those um, to not become complacent. I think that's, that's like a huge sort of not even really a fear, but a, a, a like a, I want to avoid complacency at all costs. Um, but then you also have to just truly, truly be in every moment. Right. And, and, mm-hmm. and, in order to get the most out of it, you know? Right. Yeah, for sure. Well, yeah, I guess one thing I would like to to wrap things up on, it's a version of a question I tend to ask at the end to everyone, uh, but I guess relates back to what we've been speaking to. I'm curious if, you know, you had a magic wand or whatever, and you could <laughs> make one book or even philosophy or core concepts lesson mandatory for curriculum for all students before they, <laughs> before they leave wow. middle school or that general age range if there's 
there's anything that you feel like is a is a gap presently or just that you feel like everyone could benefit from especially at that age um, yeah wow very hard question because hmm. I'm like yeah there's so many things <laughs> <laughs> now um I mean I think it would have to I would have to I would have two different answers I guess I could have some things from a practical perspective mm-hmm. and then also maybe some answers more from like a just a, a, maybe a more emotional response to like what is going to be necessary to help students build the character that mm-hmm. they need to be successful right um which is what i lean towards uh but i would say it it kind of goes back to what we were talking about right like kids have to understand that um intelligence is learned that um potential is uncapped to a degree uh and that they have to believe that you know it's up to them and that mm-hmm. they have agency to sort of unlock all these different parts of themselves and, and grow and develop and they can go get you know that they can go out and make these things happen um or make the most of each and every experience and like that belief is what then gets people excited about learning, mm-hmm. you know, and, and gets kids seeing that there's no end to it. Um, and that when you do practice things, you get better, you know, mm-hmm. and, and some of it sounds very maybe overly optimistic, but I think mm-hmm. when you have that mentality, that then is what allows you to, you know, better role with mistakes and adversity, you know, Mm -hmm. better understand all of your experiences as having value as opposed to getting really down on yourself or really up on yourself, um, along the way, you know, and and that sometimes is what makes things like high school really, really hard. Mm -hmm. Um, or even college, as we've talked about really, really hard is when you didn't come with that mentality. You didn't come with people having told you and showed you in your life that this is true. Um, And so I think, you know, when I think about what I really want to message to all of my students, you know, my former students, a lot of it is around that, you Mm -hmm. know, of like, hey, no need to be mad right now. You know, like, like you can actually change this Mm -hmm. (laughs) or no reason to be upset that you're not getting it yet. Mm-hmm. you'll get it right like everybody can and it just might take something different or more time or whatever it might be but like it's okay you know mm-hmm. um and, and that's part of the process you know and so and those are hard things for younger kids to understand for but sure. i think just like anything if it's something that's you're messaging you know early and often then it becomes part of what you understand to be true mm-hmm. you know um so yeah, maybe maybe did that answer your question? Yeah, yeah, no, it definitely did. I mean, it, <laughs> I think it's a a very valuable lesson, and, and sure, in the practical, there there has to be a way to to implement that. That's to action scalable, that, right? right? To, yeah, to get that. And there's not everyone. just one way. There's not just one. You know that that that's really just a mentality about learning, mm-hmm. um, and it irrespective of subject area, irrespective of skill, um, irrespective of where you are learning, right? You know, like that's just like a, a perspective about learning that that has to be um, developed, you know. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, yeah. I mean, now that you mentioned it, maybe there's a there's a resource, a book, uh, something in that space to be developed that could help. That yeah. be something that was a easier teaching strategy. to teach. Yeah, I think there's uh-huh. a lot of books I've read that kind of combine ideas 
like that, you know, mm. where I'm like, oh, all these things put together is is achieving the right the right idea, right. you know? Yeah. Well, mm. yeah. I mean, not to not to put you on the spot, but I guess what I'm suggesting is maybe maybe that's something you could be a part of in the future. But yeah, uh, yeah. Or maybe you know, I I've thought about maybe just um, this idea of having schools that do this, right? You know, mm. that was sort of like my idea behind becoming a principal. And it's still, you know, an idea that seems attractive to me, interesting to me, but really it's more like a superintendent, right? Like someone who can say, this is what we're going to really be doing like across the board, you know, mm. like this is what we're going to gotcha. make true in our district or in our area. But it, it, it's, it's, yeah, setting up models for success so that people can see what that looks like. Um, even more so, I think, than like writing about it and expecting someone to, you know, read and adopt. It's like, hey, let's just do it. Look, this is possible. Mm -hmm. Right. This is this is yeah. a concept that works in practice. If you want to figure out how to do it like this, you know, come learn from that or come share feedback that develops it, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, certainly. I think we could we could use a lot more of that. So uh, I'll, I'll keep tabs on that and, and be checking in. But yeah, once again, I really appreciate you doing this. And this has been great. Yeah, I feel like course. you've, you've broadened my horizons on, on a few fronts. Mm, so love to hear it. <laughs> it's been a, it's been a good time and hopefully we can maybe make a habit of it. Yeah. Now yeah. No, too. I've enjoyed it too. I, um, you know, it's nice to have specific sort of questions or like a, a conversation, you know, um, it's easy to avoid sort of deeper conversations or more thorough conversations, I think, um, in the day to day. So it's nice to have some dedicated space just to, just to talk through ideas, you know? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. You're, you're preaching in the choir, but <laughs> <laughs> yeah, once again, thanks. And thanks everyone for joining and we'll see you next time. See ya. Thank you.